Good morning, brothers and sisters. We extend a warm welcome to everyone who has joined us in church this morning for worshipping of our triune God. We also extend a special welcome to all visitors who have joined us this morning here in church or via the live stream. Today we have the privilege to witness the infant baptism of Pippa Milda. May we all be comforted and encouraged by the preaching of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God be praised and glorified through our worship. Consider as the following announcements. Since no objections have been raised, Wessel and Alette Ustosen, with their two baptised children, Hannah and Ilya, are now welcomed as members of our congregation. We have received an attestation for Sister Clarissa Benendolder from the Free Reformed Church of Bunbury. We welcome her to our congregation. Sister Caitlin Hitting has requested an attestation for the Free Reformed Church of West Albany. We wish her the Lord's blessing in her new congregation. Ian and Issa Rapley have requested to join the Free Reformed Church of Southern River. Having considered their motives as well as their knowledge of scriptures and confessions, Consistory resolves with thankfulness to grant their request. If no lawful objections are brought forward by the 26th of June, their adult baptism, the Lord willing, will take place, the Lord willing, on the 30th of July in the morning service. Next week, Sunday, on the 11th of June, the Lord willing, we hope to celebrate Lord's Supper in the morning service. You are reminded that there will be a meeting of the consistory with the congregation shortly after this worship service with an opportunity to first have coffee. All guests and visitors are welcome to join the coffee social this morning. This morning the worship service will be led by Brother Plater and before we commence, let us sing together from Psalm 95, verse 1 and 3.
Brothers and sisters, as the people of God, let's rise to worship the Lord. We begin our confession this morning that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. Receive the blessing of God, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. Let's now sing a song of praise to God. Let's sing together from Psalm 99, the verses 1 and 2. To rescue his people out of Egypt, the Lord gave them his law in order to teach them how to show them their gratitude for the gifts of his grace. Let's listen to the words of God's law, and we'll do so as it comes to us this morning in Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you 
or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's now sing together. We're going to sing from Psalm 119, the verses 10 and 12. brother and sister Ashley and Nikki Mulder have requested baptism for their daughter Pippa Elizabeth. To that end, let's first read together the form for the baptism of infants. If you want to follow along, you can find that on page 597 of your book of praise.
beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the doctrine of holy baptism is summarized as follows. First, we and our children are conceived and born in sin and are therefore by nature children of wrath so that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. This is what the immersion in or sprinkling with water teaches us. It signifies the impurity of our souls so that we may detest ourselves, humble ourselves before God, and seek our cleansing and salvation outside of ourselves. Second, baptism signifies and seals to us the washing away of our sins through Jesus Christ. We are therefore baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we are baptized into the name of the Father, God the Father testifies and seals to us that he establishes an eternal covenant of grace with us. He adopts us for his children and heirs and promises to provide us with all good and avert all evil or to turn it to our benefit. When we are baptized into the name of the Son, God the Son promises us that he washes us in his blood from all our sins and unites us with him in his death and resurrection. Thus we are freed from our sins and accounted righteous before God. When we are baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit assures us by this sacrament that he will dwell in us and make us living members in Christ, imparting to us what we have in Christ, namely the cleansing from our sins and the daily renewal of our lives till we shall finally be presented without blemish among the assembly of God's elect in life eternal. Third, since every covenant contains two parts, a promise and an obligation, we are, through baptism, called and obliged by the Lord to a new obedience. We are to cleave to this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to trust him and to love him with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and with all our strength. We must not love the world, but put off our old nature and lead a God-fearing life. And if we sometimes, through weakness, fall into sins, we must not despair of God's mercy, nor continue in sin. For baptism is a seal and a trustworthy testimony that we have an eternal covenant with God. Although our children do not understand all this, we may not therefore exclude them from baptism. Just as they share without their knowledge in the condemnation of Adam, so are they, without their knowledge, received into grace in Christ. For the Lord spoke to Abraham, the father of all believers, and thus also speaks to us and our children, saying, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Peter also testifies to this when he says, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Therefore in the old dispensation, God commanded that infants be circumcised. The circumcision was the seal of the covenant and of the righteousness of faith. Christ also took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. In the new dispensation, baptism has replaced circumcision. Therefore, infants must be baptized as heirs of the kingdom of God and of his covenant. And as they grow up, their parents have the duty to instruct them in these things. In order that we may now administer this holy sacrament to God, to his glory, for our comfort, and for the upbuilding of the congregation, Let's call upon him in true faith. Almighty eternal God, 
in your righteous judgment you punish the unbelieving and unrepentant world with the flood but in your great mercy saved and protected the believer Noah and his family you drowned the obstinate Pharaoh and all his host in the Red Sea but led your people Israel through the midst of the sea on dry ground by which baptism was signified we therefore pray that you in your infinite mercy will graciously look upon this child and incorporate her by your Holy Spirit into your son Jesus Christ so that she may be buried with him by baptism into death and raised with him to walk in newness of life we pray that she following him day by day may joyfully bear her cross and cleave to him in true faith firm hope and ardent love grant that she comforted in you may leave this life which is no more than a constant death and at the last day that she may appear without terror before the judgment seat of Christ your son all this we ask through him our Lord Jesus Christ your son who with you and the Holy Spirit the one only God lives and reigns forever amen can I now ask the parents to please rise beloved in Christ the Lord you've heard that baptism is an ordinance of the Lord our God to seal to us and our children his covenant we must therefore use this sacrament for that purpose and not out of custom or superstition that it may be clear then that you desire baptism for the right purpose you are to answer sincerely the following questions first do you confess that our children though conceived and born in sin and therefore subject to all sorts of misery even to condemnation are sanctified in Christ and thus as members of his church ought to be baptized and second do you confess the doctrine of the Old and New Testament summarized in the confessions and taught here in this Christian church is the true and complete doctrine of salvation and third do you promise as father and mother to instruct your child in this doctrine as soon as she is able to understand and to have her instructed therein to the utmost of your power brother Mulder what is your answer and sister Mulder what's your answer brothers and sisters following the baptism you're invited to rise so we're going to sing together from Psalm 103 verse 7 Pippa Elizabeth Mulder I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit
Let's now call upon God and let's do so in thanksgiving and prayer. Almighty, merciful God and Father, we thank and praise you that you have forgiven us and our children all our sins through the blood of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. You have received us through your Holy Spirit as members of your only begotten Son and so adopted us to be your children. You sealed and confirmed this to us by holy baptism. We pray, Father, that through your beloved Son, you will always govern this child by your Holy Spirit, that Pippa may be nurtured in the Christian faith and in godliness, that she may grow and increase in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant that she may thus acknowledge your fatherly goodness and mercy, which you have shown to her and to us all. May she live in all righteousness under our only teacher, king, and high priest, Jesus Christ, and valiantly fight against and overcome sin, the devil, and his whole dominion. May she forever praise and magnify you, your Son, Jesus Christ, together with the Holy Spirit, the one only true God. And now, Father, as we're about to open your word, we want to ask you for a blessing upon it. We thank you that you, you teach us how to live in relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, that you're busy with our sanctification. We're grateful, Father, that you, you don't leave us on our own, but you teach us what righteousness looks like and that you're willing to, to help us to grow into this. We pray that through the proclamation of your word this morning that we may be blessed and that we may draw near to you. Please forgive us for all our sins and please hear us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Please open uh, to Second Thessalonians chapter three. I mean, chapter two, and we'll continue our journey through the book of Thessalonians this morning. And as Reverend Poppy prayed, we're going to be dealing with the topic of sanctification. And so, in connection with that, we'll read uh, chapter two, the verses seventeen through to the end of chapter three. So Paul at this point has thanked God for the growth of the Thessalonians. He's praised God for the love of the congregation, for their faith in Jesus Christ, and also how they've received the gospel. And they didn't just believe it as the words of men, but as what it really is, the words of God. And then he continues to speak about his longing to see them. So the chapter 2, verse 17. Hear now the word of God. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and exhort you in your faith, that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. 
For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted above you, about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith? Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he might establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So far from the reading of God's word, let us now, pray, I mean, let us now sing in response Psalm 94. And in this psalm we praise God for his justice and also for his wrath against evil. And that connects to uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. So let us sing from Psalm 94 verses 1, 5, and 6.
Our text for this morning's proclamation of the gospel will be 1 Thessalonians 4, the first 12 verses. So let us read that together, 1 Thessalonians 4, and we'll read the verse 12 verses. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that, indeed, is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our lives. In response to the proclamation of the gospel, we'll sing from hymn 26. Hymn 26. Dear congregation, greatly loved by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, typically growth is what most businesses aim for. They look for new opportunities and and new ways to improve and, and maybe even to expand. They invest time and energy into developing and improving their products, their systems, their methods, their skills. So their goal is constantly upward. Now, while many businessmen find themselves in that space, there's plenty who are quite happy where they're at. There's plenty who are happy with the current situation of their, of their business. Maybe they've set some previous benchmarks and goals for themselves. They made some changes, and they're happy with where they're at. Things aren't perfect, but that's okay. It's running fine, and you can continue as normal. They've reached a certain point and they they don't desire to to continue to grow. Now sometimes that's the space we find ourselves in in our walk with with God. We We believe in God, we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This has had quite an impact on our lives. We've made some various changes. We're battling temptation, be that in weakness and and struggling with that. And there's growth. But then sometimes it happens that we hit a point and we're quite happy to stay where we're at. Things aren't perfect, but hey, no one is. And so we don't really feel impelled to to continue in our growth, to continue and growing in holiness. You could say it this way, we've hit a point in our holiness and we're happy with it. 
Now, congregation, while this is quite okay and quite appropriate for a business to stay at a certain spot and stay there, that's quite okay. But for a Christian, this is, this is not okay. You see, God's will for our lives is not that we stay at one spot and, and plateau or stagnate, but rather that we continue to grow in sanctification. Paul writes this, this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification. His expectation is perfect holiness. This is one of the very reasons he, he chose us from the very foundations of the world. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He says that we should be holy and blameless before him. So God's will for our lives is holiness. And notice, we just read the form for baptism. This is one of the promises that God gives to Pippa. It says there that the Holy Spirit promises that when, when she's baptized in the Spirit, it means that she is going to be renewed daily by the Holy Spirit, continuing uh, cleansing. And it says, till we shall finally present it without blemish among the assembly of God's elect. His will is holiness, perfect holiness, absolute perfection. And you see, this is why Christ came into the world. God sent Jesus Christ into the world so that he died for us, so that we might be holy, so that those who are unholy would be holy, so that those who are unrighteous would be righteous, and those who are sinners would be saints. And so now we are holy in Christ. And so what God is doing, he's working in our lives so that we become more and more who we are in Christ. That is, is his will for our lives. And so I preach God's word to you under the following theme. God's will is not that you stagnate, but that you walk more and more in holiness. And we'll see that this, this holiness includes continual growth. We'll see in, in 1 Thessalonians that Paul, he, he speaks about two things. About chastity, or sexual purity, and charity, brotherly love. So first, holiness includes continual growth in chastity. Now, overall, Paul is very pleased with how things are going in this Thessalonian church. It was a congregation that was full of great faith. He, he thanked God for their labor of love. And there was much joy, even in the face of persecution. They had turned from idols, and they were now, they turned from idols, and they were serving the living and the true God. Timothy testifies to this. Paul sends Timothy over to Thessalonica and he comes back. And when he returned, it says in, in chapter 3, verse 6, he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So they were walking with God. Chapter 4, verse 1. Part of our text, this is where Paul, he asks and urges the Thessalonians in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, and notice he says, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, just as you are doing. So the Thessalonians were pursuing holiness. They were seeking a life that was pleasing to God. But Paul's desire is that they continue. His desire isn't that they reach a point and plateau and, and stay where they're at, but they keep growing more and more. This is his earnest prayer. That's what he says in, in chapter 3, verse 11, or well, specifically verse 12. 
His prayer is that they would grow and increase and abound in love for one another. And then says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That you would be established in holiness. He urges them, do so more and more. Because that is the will of God for your life. It's sanctification. You're being made holy. That's a process. That's a process which is a constant growth. A growth until that one day where Christ comes back when we will be perfect and blameless before him. Now you see, while things were really good in Thessalonica... Paul was still worried about them. You get a sense of that in in chapter 3. That was the reason why he sent uh, Timothy there in the first place. He He sent Timothy there to see how they were holding up. They were facing great persecutions and he was worried that they would be moved in their afflictions. It says, chapter 3, verse 6, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had come in And tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He was worried that their faith would be shipwrecked by the afflictions, by the persecutions they were experiencing. And also as we see in our passage, that they would return to the sexual immorality that was characteristic of their lives previously. In other words, he was worried that the tempter would come and that they would be a seed that not only fell on the way and was plucked away by the birds but also the seed that falls on the ground and is choked by the weeds, by sexual immorality of the world. You see, his call for holiness here includes chastity, growing in sexual purity. And he expands on that statement with three that statements. And all of them have to do with continual growth and purity. So verse 3b is the first one. So he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So sexual purity is not an add-on to the Christian faith, but it's fundamental to it. If you think of the book of Acts, when the Jerusalem council are talking about the Gentiles coming in into the church and, and joining the church of Jesus Christ, one of the things that they told them in Acts 15 verse 29, they urged them to turn away from idols, to not eat anything that was offered to idols, and to abstain from sexual immorality. And think of Peter. Peter pleads with his readers in his epistle. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's 1 Peter 2 verse, verse 9. To stay away. Place distance between yourself and sexual immorality of any kind, any sexual activity that is outside of the God-ordained context of marriage between one man and one woman. God said, Paul says, stay away, put distance, flee from it. Now that was just as countercultural back then as, as it is for us. So these Christians, they had turned from idols to the living God. And part of idol worship, there was a lot of sexual immorality with that. And if you think of the first century Rome, it was characterized by sexual laxity. Anything went. And the Thessalonian church, well, Thessalonica as a city, would have been no outlier in this respect. It was a major port city, and so it would have been a hubbub of activity, also of sexual immorality. 
See, it was a, it was a cultural context where prostitution was, was totally acceptable, even seen as a legitimate way to properly carry yourself in marriage. Slave, sex with slaves was okay. Homosexuality was okay, depending on how you, what part you played. And so that was the environment that the, the, the Thessalonian church was in. That was the air that they breathed. It's very similar to our, our context today, where sexual immorality is championed and is seen as even a basic right. That is, being authentic to your true self, living according to your desires. And so Paul says, he urges them, abstain from sexual immorality. And so that's the first, that statement. And then we get the second one where he says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You see, the sexual ethic of those who don't have a relationship with God, a personal relationship with God, is slavery to to lust-filled passions. And you see how, how Paul creates a contrast here. He creates a contrast between those who do have a living relationship with God and those who don't. He says that those who don't have a living relationship with God, that their life is characterized by giving in to passions and living out every passion they have. But, but those who do have a relationship with God, a relationship with Jesus Christ, their life is characterized by self-control and a continual growth and a continual desire to be self-controlled. So that means, congregation, that we have to ask ourselves a question. If we are allowing ourselves to live out any sexual passion or lust, maybe we have to ask ourselves this question. Is it because we don't actually know God? Is it because we don't actually have a living relationship with Christ? Because Paul says that increasing self-control, a continued pursuit of self-control, is a characteristic of a person whose life has been changed by the gospel. And so he says, live self-controlled lives. And then he continues... What does this holiness look like? And we get to the third that statement. And that is in verse 6. He says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner. So God's will for our lives is sanctification. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner. So this verse shows us that any sexual sin, whether it's pornography, whether it's inappropriate physical touch, whether it's sleeping around, whatever it is, It doesn't just affect the the people engaging in that, the two people engaging that. It has shockwaves through the rest of the community. Paul speaks about wronging your brother in this manner. And it's quite legitimate for us to broaden that out and to read it in this way, to wrong your brother or sister in this manner. You see, when we live out our sexual passions, and we live out our lust-filled desires, we're going to wrong our brothers and sisters. And how do we do that? Well, the word that Paul uses for wronging is a financial term. It means to exploit someone, to take advantage of them, to, to even cheat them. 
And the same word, it appears in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 2, where Paul says, We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. So when we we watch explicit material, or when we push boundaries with our, our boyfriends or our girlfriends, when we fantasize about sexual thoughts, or when we engage in, in sexual activity outside of marriage, or we misuse it within marriage, we are taking advantage of someone. We're exploiting them. We're not treating them with holiness and honor, but rather our impurity is dishonoring them and shaming them and bringing shame. And some of you know exactly what Paul means. You know what it's like to be taken advantage of. Maybe it was when you were a bit drunk at a party, or while you were dating, or maybe some other way. And you know the shame. You know the hurt. You know how they've wronged you in this area. And maybe how it continues to have shockwaves in your life. Where it affects your relationships. Affects your relationship with those whom you love. Even in this area. As Paul says, part of the Christian life is not taking advantage of others in this respect. And further he says, so there's an aspect of taking advantage and exploiting someone. But it's also, there's an there's a essence of the word which is defrauding someone. Cheating them. So Paul tells us when we, are, when we sin sexually, whether by ourselves or with others, he says that this is fraud, it's cheating them. You are robbing your spouse or your future spouse of something that is rightfully theirs in the marriage covenant. If you want to make it real, congregation, there was a brother in Canada who had to have this conversation with his wife. Darling, you know that time when I went to Florida? Well, it wasn't just for business. Well, could you imagine the look on his wife's face? Can you imagine the shattered trust? How she was defrauded and cheated? He had robbed her of something that was hers. That belonged to her, that he promised for her and her only. Or we can think of another situation. Many of us have had this conversation and possibly will have have to have this conversation with our girlfriends or boyfriends or fiancés. We have to say, you know, there's something that you need to know about me. Something you need to realize before we get married. And then you disclose your struggle that you've had with pornography or with, with sexual sin or some other history. And maybe like me, you can still see the pain in their face. The betrayal, the sadness, because you defrauded them. You robbed them of something that was rightfully theirs. Paul is calling us to continue to grow in holiness. That means not defrauding those whom we love. And he gives a very sober warning here. He says... He says there that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. 
He appeals to the fact that God is going to punish us. He will avenge us for the wrongs committed. Especially when we continue in this way. So there's a, in so doing, he's alluding to Psalm 94, which we sang together. And the, the psalmist there, he's describing God as the God who, who avenges. He said, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up and judge the earth. So Paul takes this and he applies it to Jesus Christ. And so he says, Christ is coming. And he is going to be the agent of God's wrath. And he will punish those who reject the demands of the gospel. The demands of the gospel for holiness as it relates to sexual purity. You see, this occurs in in 2 Thessalonians again where Paul speaks of the same image in chapter 1. He says that Christ is going to come inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when we persist in sexual sin and reject the ethic of the gospel, when we continue and we kind of play it off lightly, Paul says we're not just rejecting a human principle, we're not just rejecting a cultural norm that we have, some cultural tradition. No, he says we're rejecting God. Notice how many times that Paul appeals to the authority of Jesus Christ. It comes back throughout this this chapter. So he says, verse 1, I urge you in the Lord Jesus. Verse 2, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And the word instruction there, it speaks of, of a command that goes through soldiers. So it's a command from the commanding officer. And then verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. It is God who calls us to sexual purity. He is the one who sets the standards for our sexual ethic. And so if we disregard that, if we treat that lightly, if we despise that, we're not just despising something that is man-made. We're despising God himself. And so Paul says, beware. Because if you do that, God will avenge when Christ comes in glory. So brothers and sisters, if any of you are taking the call of God for purity lightly, kind of playing it off, and the Spirit is giving a solemn warning to you, He's calling you to repent. He's calling you to turn to Jesus Christ because you will face judgment for that. This is not God's will for your life. Remember, God's will is not that you stagnate, but that you continue to grow in holiness, that you grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so don't despise Him, but embrace Him. Embrace the call of the gospel. You see, as much as there's a warning here, brothers and sisters, we also need to realize that Paul is spurring on the Thessalonians. He doesn't want them to reach a point And just to plateau. Maybe look at their neighbors who are engaging in all sorts of sexual activity and say, well, at least I'm not like them. At least I got some sort of self-control in this area. He says, no, continue, press on, keep going. Keep going. And so, like the Thessalonians congregation, that is Paul's call to you as well. You see, many of you are pursuing sexual purity. It's a battle, it's a continued struggle that you are experiencing but you're walking in the way of the Lord. 
you're keeping yourself accountable, maybe you're installing software or whatever, else, or whatever. you're speaking to trusted friends and family, you're endeavoring to love your, your spouse well in this area, you're putting boundaries in place with your, with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, with your fiancés, you're fighting your lustful desires. And so Paul says, he's cheering you on, he says, keep going. Continue to grow more and more because that's God's will for your life that you grow in holiness. And how are you going to grow, brothers and sisters? How are you going to grow in purity, in holiness? Well, we press on by looking to Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, though he lived in a world full of sexual morality, he walked in self-control throughout his unmarried life. When prostitutes... And other women came to him, unlike the men of his time who took from them and exploited them, Jesus was a man who blessed them. He treated them with integrity. He treated them with, with honor. If we use the analogy that Jesus gives of cutting off your hand and plucking out your eye, well, Jesus didn't have to gouge out his eye for looking at a woman lustfully. He didn't have to cut off his hand for the way he touched a woman. No, because he was perfect, perfect, absolutely holy in purity. You know, brothers and sisters, the only marks that he bore, it wasn't for his sexual sin, but it was for yours, it was for me. The marks that he bore where his hands were pierced on the cross and where his legs were pierced, where he bore the wrath of God, the vengeance of God, against your sexual immorality. And it's by looking to him, looking to him for forgiveness. And so, so I should say, look to him for forgiveness. Because when you fall, God will lift you up. And know that you're not alone. See, that's the promise, the beautiful promise of the gospel, is that the Christ who sits in heaven at God's right hand, the God who gives us the Holy Spirit, he has poured out his spirit. We're now temples of the spirit. The third person of the triune God dwells in your heart. He's made his home in your heart. And so he will equip you so that you bear fruits of the Spirit. And what's one of the fruits of the Spirit? Self-control. And he will empower you so that more and more you grow in chastity and sexual purity. And so the call of the gospel includes a continual growth of holiness in sexual morality. But then Paul also moves on and he speaks about continual growth in charity. And that will be our last point. And by charity, I don't mean organizations that give money to the poor. But a, 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 charitable, a charitable spirit of, of generosity and service that, that comes from a heart of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now once again, if we think of the Thessalonian church and... They, they were a model congregation in this. That's what we saw in our first sermon. Paul speaks and he praises them for their love. And he even uses them as an example for other Christians. We don't read of any other church that get, gets this kind of commendation. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need that anyone write to you. You have no need to add anything further. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. He says, you are doing this. 
And the word that is talking about that you are doing this, it's, it's something of, of a habit, of a habitual practice. It's not like the congregation just loved people, but they are loving people. This is their, their practice. This is their, their thing. The church was characterized by love. And so Paul, he describes their love and he says that their love for people who were formerly just acquaintances, not even acquaintances, can only be explained by the fact that they've been taught by God. God is the one who has helped them to learn what it looks like to love. He says there, you have been taught by God to love one another. And we read about that in the, in the prophets, Isaiah 54 verse 13. The prophet, he, he looks forward to an age of salvation when God's people would be taught by him. And he prophesies, he says, all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. And so it is God who teaches us how to love. He teaches believers how to love and he taught the Thessalonians. But then once again, even though the Thessalonians are loving each other and they're doing well, Paul, Paul again, he, he tells them, don't sit back contented where you're at, happy with the current situation. You see, again, he's, he's telling us that at no point in our lives do we hit a, situa- hit a point where we can just sit there and everything's good. No, he says, God is making you holy, and that means a, con- a continual growth, a continual growth in love. He wanted them to grow more and more. Remember, that was his prayer. His prayer, verse 12, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So he urges them in this. this continue to love and do so once again more and more. And just like his command for sexual purity which involve constant growth, he expands on this calling to continue to love one another more and more. He expands on that in verse 11 and 12. He says, And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So at first glance, if you look at verse 11 to 12, it seems to be a bit of a disconnect between what he's saying there and his, his urge, which is that they grow in love. But in actual fact, it is connected. And we see this because of what was going on in the, the Thessalonian church. So it seems that some of the Thessalonians were living in a way that was starting to create tension in the congregation of God. So the problem was, was undermining the, the love and generosity that was there in the church. We, we can tell from, we get, I should say, a little glimpse of that in, in chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul, in verse 14, he, he charges them and he says, in chapter, one verse, in chapter 5, verse 14, he says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. And then if you look to Second Thessalonians, he expands on that and he gives us a bit more of what was going on in the church. So what was happening is that because of the Thessalonians' Uh, expectation that Christ was coming back. They thought he was going to come back any moment. His return was, was imminent. That some of them decided to stop working and just sit back and wait because Christ was coming. And so he tells them there in 3 verse 11, 3 verse 11 he says, 
For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. So while they weren't working, they were twiddling their thumbs and they were looking into the affairs of other people. They weren't minding their own business, but they were busybodies. And as a result of their idleness, it seems that there was, the better off members of the congregation were feeling obliged to, to help them. And so this was something that was creating tension. And Paul says, no. He says, work. Be self-sufficient. Work with your own hands, he says. Be dependent on no one. And that same command is repeated in 2 Thessalonians 3. So he explains how he's, he's uh, worked among them. He gave them example in this. He, they, didn't, they didn't have to give him any bread because he bought his own bread. And then he says there, he says, Now such persons, so he's talking about the idle people. He says, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. You see, working here was a way for the congregation to grow in their love more and more. It was a way for them to, to love the household of faith better. And yet it was also a way for them to honor the name of Christ in their community. So by working faithfully, they were able to love one another because they could serve the other people in the church, they could give to those who had need. But then he also says that it also would lead to honor of Christ's name in the community. And you have to remember that the community was quite hostile to the Thessalonian believers. If you remember in Acts 17, when Paul preached the gospel, there was a full uproar in the city. And so Paul says, live in such a way that you walk properly before the outsiders. That you are respectable. That's what the, the word means. It's used in the Gospel of Bach in chapter 15, verse 43. It describes Joseph of Arimathea, that he was a respected man. And so he ties it, he says, you have to be respectable, but he says, be respectable, dependent on no one. So have a respectable independence. Now what does that mean? Well, he's saying, live in such a way that you work faithfully, so that you can care for one another, that you take care of those who have need, of financial needs, that you serve one another, and that others look in, and they see how you take care of your people so much, and they're going to respect you for that. They would see that they're, they're reliable people. They would see that they are people who have respect, who can respect. And so in this way, they would walk properly before outsiders. Now, isn't it an interesting congregation that work, faithful work, is a matter of holiness. It's a matter of, of love, of growing in love. More than that, it's a matter of pleasing God, living a way that's pleasing God, to God. You see, it's very easy for us to kind of buy into the worldly view of work, where work is something that is a necessary evil. It's where the goal is to make as much money in the least amount of time of work, to do as little as possible, and even where idleness is sought after. If you're able not to, not to work, then that's great. Well, Paul says, brothers and sisters, you want to know how to love one another well and to love the community of faith well? It's by working faithfully in your task. And if you are able to work and aren't working, he says, go work. Go work faithfully. It doesn't get more practical than that, does it? 
Because in so doing, when you work faithfully, you're able to help the congregation. You're able to provide for those who aren't able to work. You're, you're able to provide for those who are in need. This is what we confess in Lord's Day 42. So when it's talking about the sixth commandment, it says that instead we're to promote our neighbor's good wherever I can and may, deal with him as I would like others to deal with me, and work faithfully so that I may be able to give to those in need. So by working faithfully, we, we serve the congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We serve the body of Christ. And what happens, Paul says, when you do that, when you work faithfully, and when you take care of your people well, then others are going to be amazed. And the people who are outside of the church are going to look, and they'll see how we take care of, of the elderly. They'll see how we take care of those with special needs. They'll look at worthy hands. They'll look at eucalypt. They'll look at the financial aid and the care that the deacons give. And they'll be amazed. And they'll respect the church for that. Because they'll know the church to be a place where people are cared for. Where they're loved. Where people work faithfully to care for one another. And if we think of Christ's ministry, that is, that is the fundamental thing that characterizes ministry. He worked faithfully to serve and to care for others. So God gave him a task, and he went, and he did faithfully. He preached, and he healed, hour after hour, day after day. And behind that work ethic was a heart of, of charity. It was a heart of love and care for people. If you want an example of that, just think of the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6. So if you turn to Mark chapter 6, we see the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ in this respect. So Mark 6 verse 31. So Mark 6 verse 31. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, he said, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So they were exhausted from a long day of work. They'd been preaching and teaching. And so what happens is Jesus says, let's get into the boat and let's go. and Let's have some downtime. Let's have some rest. And then verse 34 tells us, well, verse 33 tells us that many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And so verse 34, when, when he went to shore, he saw this crowd. Now, if it was us... We'd probably say, guys, can you please move and go? We haven't even sat down for lunch. We haven't even had smoko yet. Can you please just move along? But he doesn't. The Bible tells us that when he went ashore, that's Jesus, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. He continued to work faithfully. And why? It's because he loved them. It's because he cared about them. And that's what we see in Jesus' ministry. He cared about people. He loved people. And as a result, what was happened, many people respected him for that. There's people from high standing wanted to meet Jesus because they heard about him from others. Think of many officials. They wanted to meet him. Why? Because he walked properly before outsiders. They were amazed at his love and at his care. You see, that's what holiness looks like. A congregation just wrapping up. Like the Thessalonians, 
The call is to continue to love one another. And once again, Paul is spurring us on in that. So he's calling us to continue to work faithfully, to love our brothers and sisters, to live in such a way that we can be of service to one another and so that we can care for each other, that no one has need. Because that is the will of God. And so for the Thessalonian church, they love people well. And Paul says, you can grow in this and grow in it by working faithfully. And brothers and sisters, you love people well. And Paul says, I'll continue to grow. Work faithfully so that you can love each other. You see, in business, it's possible to just entirely plateau and, and keep going, to continue as is and just stay there. But that's not God's purpose for our life. That's not his call for our life. God is at work in us and he's establishing us to make us holy. To make us so that one day we'll be presented without blame. We'll be blameless before him. Pure and holy. And so until then, press on, congregation. Continue to live more and more in holiness. Pleasing God with the way that you live. For that is his will for your life. It's sanctification. It's that you continue to grow in holiness until Christ comes back. You see, God wants his people to live in God's way according to God's will. Amen. Let's now sing in response hymn 26.
Let's now come before God in prayer. And in our prayer this morning, we will pray for our brother Trent Kottos, who had a, uh, a lump found on his thyroid, which is very concerning. And so we'll pray for a blessing over the tests that will be, will be done for our brother. And then also we'll pray for our sister Jenny Van Dongen, who has, who has COVID. And so giving, given all her, her medical history, it's quite concerning. We're thankful that things are going well, but we'll pray that God will continue to be with her. So let us pray to our God. Dear Father in heaven, we pray this morning the prayer of Paul. Lord, may you make us increase and abound in love for one another and for all, so that Christ would establish our hearts blameless in holiness before you, our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. For Lord, this is your will for our lives. Your will is that we grow more and more in holiness until that great day of Christ's return when we will be perfect before you. Until then, Lord, help us to pursue holiness. Help us to grow in in love and care for one another, that we would work faithfully so that we're able to better serve the church of Jesus Christ. Guard our hearts from idleness and a spirit of laziness, but rather fill us with, with a selfless concern for our brothers and sisters in this church. And Lord, we also pray that you would help us in our, in our pursuit of sexual purity. Lord, you know the culture that we live in and how permissive it is and even how dismissive it is of your, your charge for sexual purity. Lord, equip us by your spirit so that we may walk self-controlled lives, that we would honor our brothers and our sisters in the faith, that we would treat them with integrity. And Lord, we pray that you would be with those who've been deeply hurt by the way that someone's treated them. Lord, please surround them with your care. Give them what they need to work through all the emotions. Lord, we know that you are God who's angered by this because it goes against your good intentions for sexuality. And so we ask that you would watch over them. And Father, we also pray that you would please watch over uh, all of us as we continue to fight against this sin. Pick us up when we fall and empower us to live in purity. Encourage us with the support of our loved ones and, and other older brothers and sisters in the, in the faith. Lord, please be with those who are dating or engaged. Help them to honor each other, saving themselves for that beautiful moment when they can experience the fullness of intimacy in marriage. Father, thank you for your care for us. Thank you that you are working this in our hearts, that you're making us more and more holy before you. And we praise you that you are a God whom we can bring all our, our cares and all our needs to you. And so in this way, we, we pray for our brother Trent Kodos. Father, we ask that you would please bless the tests that, that he will be having this week. Lord, the lumps on, on his thyroid are worrying, given the fact that he's a young man. We pray that you'd please watch over him, give clarity and, uh, from the tests, and equip him for what lies ahead. You know his journey that he's had over the past few months. And yet this is another health concern. So please grant him much patience. Help him to have confidence in you, that he would trust your goodness. Lord, sometimes it's very difficult when you are experiencing many medical concerns. We pray that you please be with him. Father, in this regard, we pray too that you would watch over our sister Jenny Vendongen, who has COVID. Lord, we're thankful that she is doing well considering. We pray that you continue to protect our sister and watch over her and give her good health, that she would start to feel better in due time. 
Father, we pray that you continue to be with others who are under doctor's care, who are experiencing medical attention. We praise you for the, uh, the health system that we have. Lord, how we're very well taken care of and how we have access to such brilliant medical experts and medical attention. Lord, be with those who are nurses, be with those who are doctors, who are in this space. Father, watch over them as they care for the community in this way. And Father, we also pray that you would continue to bless us in the rest of this day of worship. We thank you that you are a God who gives us rest, who God who gives us a time to be nourished and to be charged up after a, a long week of work. And so we pray that you'd please uh, bless our worship, receive our offerings as we give them out of thanksgiving, and bless the fellowship that we have later this morning. We pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen. You now have an opportunity to give of your thank offerings to God, and the thank offerings are requested this morning for the mission work in P&G. And then after your offerings are collected, we'll sing from hymn 43, verses 1, 3, 4, and 6.
Receive God's blessing from 2 Corinthians 13, 14 and go in peace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.